Go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word or open up your app. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke chapter 12 as we continue to make our way almost to the midpoint of this Gospel. We've been in Luke for many months. We have many more months to go. And uh, today we have a particularly personal text to look at. So please turn your Bibles to Luke 12. We're going to start in verse 13 and make our way all the way down to 34. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. I will read and you follow along. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you would speak to us. Lord, you're going to hit our checkbook, our wallet, our budget pretty hard today. Lord, may we not be defensive, but may we be open to hearing what you have to say about our stuff and about our hearts. Lord, we've, we've heard these passages before. Please help us not to be callous to them. We ask that you would change us so that we might have our treasure and therefore our heart in the right place. 
Lord, I pray for those this morning that this will be a particularly hard message because money is scarce, because they are struggling. Lord, I pray you would encourage their hearts. Pray for those who are anxious, who are struggling with the sin of worry, and that today they would repent of that sin, that they would be comforted by you, and that they would trust you. And Lord, today as we think about our business meeting this afternoon, may we remember that everything that we have is yours. Nothing that we have um, is from our own creation. You have given us all things. Therefore, let us hold loosely to these things, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, back in the early 20th century, somebody asked President Theodore Roosevelt on what could possibly prompt the decline of the United States of America. And President Roosevelt said these words. Listen carefully. What will prompt the decline of America? Prosperity at any price. Peace at any price. Safety first instead of duty first. The love of soft living and the get-rich theory of life. Now that does not just describe most Americans I know. That describes most Christians I know. And that seems to describe the man of the house where I live. This is straight at our hearts. I I looked up uh, the get-rich-quick theories that have um, succeeded slash failed over the years. Uh, The pyramid scheme, right? The the early Ponzi scheme. Uh, We saw that with Bernie Madoff several years ago. Took that to an extreme. Here's one of the more interesting ones I found. There was a Scottish soldier and adventurer named Gregor McGregor, which is an awesome name. (laughs) I love that. No need to get creative, just Gregor McGregor. After he fought for South American independence, he returned to England and he pretended to be a Kazik of Poyais. You ever heard of Poyais? No, you haven't because it's a totally made-up island nation off the coast of Honduras. He created a guidebook detailing the landscape and the abundant natural resources of this island, Poyais. He collected money from over 250 would-be colonists. And by the time his investors reached the patch of water where their island should have been, he was already rounding up more money from potential colonists in France. Why in the world would those 250 people fall for that scheme? They would fall for that scheme the same way many of us might fall for something similar because we perceive that a lot more money in a lot less time will solve a lot more of our problems quickly. If only X, then Y. And if X is easier, then all the better. The problem with this is not mainly problem solving. It's not mainly logic. It's not mainly being good at math. It's actually a a cause that is rooted in the most ancient temptation. Did God really say? Is God's way really best? Because it seems awfully slow sometimes, doesn't it? God doesn't seem to be working too well for me. You know, if you want something done right, do it yourself. Having my eyes opened, Eve must have thought, sounds good and the fruit looks exquisite. And so our first parents ate and so plunged us into sin. 
So this morning, let's see what Jesus has to say about possessions, about money, about greed, about anxiety, and about a better investment strategy. So what started this? Let's look at the text, Luke chapter 12. It started with a family dispute. Anybody ever been a part of a family dispute? I'm not going to ask you if you've been part of a family money dispute because that's exactly what's happening here. But this is really important for us to see. So I have three points for us today, and they're all basically little prayers. The first one, point number one, may we be on guard against greed. May we be on guard against greed. This man, in verse 13, calls out to Jesus from the crowd, Teacher, this is a command, not a request. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Well, what's prompting this? Well, in Jewish life, religion and law were so tightly woven that rabbis actually were very often the ones who could settle disputes like this. Um, the, the law in several places in the Old Testament actually talks about inheritance rights, talks about how inheritance would function. And so this man has every expectation in his mind that Jesus is exactly the right man to answer this question, except if you may have noticed, he didn't ask a question. He made a statement. He made a demand. Now, it's very interesting that this is in the Gospel of Luke because in a few chapters, we're going to get to a well-known parable where a younger brother would like his inheritance a little early. I don't know if this is the younger brother, but if you look at the passage, it seems to me that this is probably the younger brother because the older brother would get the birthright. He would get twice as much as everybody else. And so this seems like a younger brother saying, Jesus, you're a rabbi. You tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. Could it be that his brother was there in the crowd? Could it be that his brother was next to him? He makes a demand, Jesus... Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, Jesus says something interesting in verse 14. He said, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And it would seem like they could say, like, uh, uh, you're a rabbi. So that's who made God did. You're a judge. That's what you're supposed to do. But Jesus refuses to get into this family dispute. Instead, he bypasses and goes directly to the heart motivation. Jesus sees this man's heart in a way that maybe we couldn't have if we had been in that crowd. Because look what he says in verse 15. And he said to them, prompted by this request, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus sees exactly what's happening here. This this young man is not seeking justice, He is seeking more. He is self-seeking. He wants what he wants, and he wants Jesus to be the avenue of getting it. This is at the heart of the wicked prosperity gospel that we see on TBN and we see in bookstores, we see in televangelists. Use God to get your best life now. Use God to get riches and wealth. And that sounds really nice because if God's all-powerful, then he certainly could give me all that stuff. And that is the deception. It feeds on our covetousness, our greed, our lust for more. This word covetousness is used interestingly in Colossians 3 verse 5. And there Paul is listing things in our life that we need to put to death. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, 
evil desire. Yeah, that sounds bad. Get that out of there. And covetousness, which is idolatry. So here's what Paul gives us an insight here, that that covetousness um, is actually idolatry. It is actually elevating whatever you're coveting, the material, the money, the person, whatever you're coveting becomes your God. It stands in the place of God. And that is why it's not just oh, a little greed. That's why Paul tells um, Timothy, he says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. By it, many have hurt themselves and they've, they've even hurt themselves. Like in pursuing wealth and money, they, they've actually self-inflicted harm because of their pursuit of what they want of money, of possessions, of things. Think about some of these synonyms to this word, covetousness, greediness, insatiableness. You can't get enough. Avarice. The definition is the state of desiring to have more than one's due. This is what you're due, but I'm not satisfied with it. I need more. Jesus sees right through this young man's cry for justice. And he sees what is at the root of it. He sees what the problem is. And so he tells us something that we desperately need to take into consideration. I am convinced that this is one of the chief sins of Orange County Christians. I live in L.A. County. Okay, L.A. County too. And anyone who's visiting. (laughs) But here we are in Orange County, one of the richest places on the planet. And we need to hear this. Your life, y'all's life, our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Let that sink in. Our life does not consist, your life is not better just because you have more stuff. And we know this is true, but we don't like that it's true because we like to think that more stuff means better life. Think of the thing right now that you're saving for. It's a, I'm, I'm, I hope it's a great thing. It probably is a great thing. But where this gets bad is when we think that thing that I'm saving for that would really help our family, that would really help my finances, that would really help our home, that would really help fill in the blank. If only I just had that, my life would be better. No, (laughs) Jesus is adamantly against this. And so what does he do? He tells a parable in verse 16. So point number two, the next prayer for the morning is, may we be rich in the right direction. Weird phrase. May we be rich in the right direction. Jesus begins to tell a story to help the hearers hear in a different way. Rather than using them as an example, he uses a hypothetical as an example. Someone they can easily dream up in their minds and use their imagination, and then Jesus can bypass some of their natural defenses and get to the heart of the problem. So look at verse 16 in this parable. There's only one character. The land of a what? Okay, let's try that again. Audience participation. The land of a... Hey, thank you, John. The land of a rich man. This man is rich at the outset. He is already rich. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. 
That's good. Correct? How many of you have a garden? How many of you are just so excited when the plant you were really hoping to produce from dies? Oh, I feel so good. I'm such a good farmer. Who needed those cucumbers, those tomatoes? Who needed that? Right? No, you want it to produce. That's why you planted it. You want to enjoy the fruit of the plant. So this is not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with this. His, his crops produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? That's a great question. He has a problem. For I have nowhere to store my crops. What's the alternative? Well, you don't want to just let it die out in the field. I don't have anywhere to put this. This is a, a, a legitimate, totally okay problem. He said, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll do this. Verse 18. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. Now, honestly, if the problem is too many crops, isn't the answer more storage? Yes, it is. I mean, that's, that's the answer. I'm no farmer, but that would seem to me to be a very proper and right thing to think. Maybe there's other options, but this isn't a bad one. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Good, okay. That's a great plan. Good, wise thinking. In verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you talk that way to yourself? Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now, before we get to verse 20, don't cheat, don't look at it. You already did, don't do it. Listen, this doesn't sound so bad. This sounds actually like really smart. What's wrong with relaxing, eating and drinking and being merry? If you would look in Ecclesiastes 2.24, you'd see that Solomon says there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. That's what Solomon said. That's in the wisdom literature for us. Now in Ecclesiastes 11.9, he does say, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. But he still says, he's not saying don't do it. Just be aware. Think about this. Ecclesiastes 2, 18 through 21 will also show you some more. But there are several places in the Old Testament where it seems that the proper response in celebration is to eat, drink, and be merry. In fact, God commanded his people three times a year to come to Jerusalem in order to celebrate. They ate, they drank, they were merry. So what's wrong with any of this? Jesus, what are you doing with this parable? What are you doing with this story? Jesus is thinking along the same lines that Paul later on, or I guess Paul is thinking along the same lines as Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is making his great uh, argument for the resurrection, both Jesus' resurrection and ours, he says this in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 15, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul begins to see that if life is temporal, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, because we're just going to die. Let's just enjoy it now. A little bit different take on it. In the book of Isaiah, 20, verse, chapter 22, verses 12 and 13, notice this. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen 
and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What's the difference here? The difference is, what is the purpose of eating and drinking and being merry? What is the heart motivation? This man's heart motivation we find out in verse 20. We get another character. God himself says to the rich man, fool. Now, he's not talking like lingo. He's not trying to be hip with this guy. He's not saying, fool. Okay, (laughs) what he is saying is he's using the Old Testament word fool um, from the book of Psalms where it says, uh, the, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool is not just um, kind of a guy who needs to study more. The fool is an immoral man. The fool is someone who has not used the wisdom of God. So God says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. That soul that he said soul to, that soul. That soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared... Whose will they be? And then Jesus gives us finally the point. So is the one, just like this fool, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the big deal. This is The reason this parable hits so close to home is because everything about the parable seems exactly right. It seems, yes, that's wise, that's prudent, that's planning. Very good. What is the man's purpose? The man's purpose is so that he might enjoy himself alone. Look at verse uh, 17. How many eyes do you see? Two. There's one my. Look at verse 18. How many eyes do you see? Three eyes. Three mys. Verse 19. I will say to my soul, is dominated by me, 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 me. There is no one else in the equation. It is just the rich fool. He wants what he wants and he wants it for him. And this is the problem. Jesus points out that the man who brought this all up by talking about the family dispute, he wants more money because he wants more money for him. He does not want justice. But Jesus is going around our natural defenses to all of you planners, all of you organizers, everyone who's got everything mapped out. You do those retirement calculators once a month. Make sure you're on track. Your heart falls with the stock market. It rises with the stock market. Jesus goes around those things to say, what's it for? What's it for? Jesus never says in the Gospels, and Paul and Peter and James and John never say, don't be rich, don't make money. Never say that. So hear me. But we lose the radical edge when we, when we kind of rationalize this away. What we need to see is that motives matter. Motives matter. We have to be on our guard. Jesus starts the parable. I mean, he starts verse 15, sorry, before the parable by saying, take care, be on your guard. Those are the same words that are used to guard the Garden of Eden. That's what Adam was supposed to do. He had to guard it. He had to tend it. 
He'd take care of it. It was the same words used for the priests and the Levites. They were to guard the tabernacle. Not just any Joe Schmo got to walk in the tabernacle. They were to guard it. They were to set a guard around it to make sure that no one entered. We are to make sure to set a guard against all covetousness. We, we, we actively go against this, not reactively or passively. We don't wait till the problem occurs. We anticipate the problem of greed and we head it off at the pass. Will you be greedy in the next year? Yes, you will be. You will be greedy. I will be greedy probably before the day is done. Knowing that, what do we do? Well, God will forgive me. Or do we take this active word that God gives to us, be on your guard against all covetousness. Why? Because it's going to destroy your life. Because if you let it take hold, God is going to say to you, fool, way to save up. You're going to retire tomorrow. You don't get any of it. And the, and the implication is, and you get judgment in hell. Wasn't worth it. Wasn't worth it. Now, so the question becomes, what's the clear dividing line? Black and white between wisdom, prudence, frugality, planning, and greediness and excess. How do we know what the line is? I don't know. I don't know. And I really don't want to see every, everyone's budget in here and then make that decision. My main concern this morning is, is not in, in giving you the line, but maybe waking you up to have you even thought about God when you consider your spending, your saving, your giving, your budgeting, or is it merely a mathematical equation? God gets this, I get this. God gets this, I get this. I give this away, you get that. Just a, is this a pie chart? Sorry for you, though, guys love pie charts. Put God in your pie chart. Um, have you thought about God in regards to any of that? Or is it just taking care of me and my stuff? God has given us the stewardship of his stuff. Paul says, what do you have that you have not received? The implication is nothing. Everything you have, you received from God as a good and gracious gift. So I want to warn us at first that prudent, efficient stewardship can sometimes, sometimes be a mask for greedy, self-reliant hoarding. Now, what I'm not saying is just be, be unwise. Just throw your money around. I'm not, don't hear me saying that. But what I'm saying is just because you're wise and prudent and planning doesn't mean you have God in mind. It just might mean you have you in mind. So this requires us to look deeper than our spreadsheets, than our envelopes, than our budgets. It requires us to look at our motivations. It requires us to look at our greatest desires and it requires us to look at our greatest loves. Consider uh, missionary martyrs, uh, Jim Elliott's words, his immortal words that many of you have heard. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. How many of you have heard that before from Jim Elliott? Okay, m- many of you have. Okay, Jim Elliott was a, a martyr in Ecuador in the 50s. He said, listen, he is, listen to how this sounds like our passage. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain, to gain, 
to gain, to get more. To gain what? What he cannot lose. Do you see that? It's using all the same words as the greedy fool. And yet we know Jim Elliot gave his life, literally, speared to death by Indians so that later on those Indians would embrace the gospel. He was, life was not a waste. The amount of money he left to his wife mattered very little compared to the fact that he was ready to give his life for Jesus. So the plea is, don't be a fool. And a fool might look clean-cut, conservative, with a healthy 401k. A fool might look like someone who has no money saved and is living paycheck to paycheck. The outward appearance does not tell us about the foolishness. The heart does. This is important for us to remember. You see, God told, God told the Israelites back in Deuteronomy when they were about to enter the land. They're standing on the plains of Moab. They're looking. There's the Jordan River. They can see across the land that was promised to them. And God tells them this in, in Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18 talking about when they get there, when they get the land. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. It is Yahweh who gives us power to get wealth. Why do you have your job? What is the ultimate answer to that? The grace of God. Why do you have your job? Because I'm awesome. Okay, now we have a problem. Because God loves you and graciously gave you that job. Deuteronomy 31.20 For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. When would they do that? When they had more stuff. When they had more stuff. This fool said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And God said, no. And none of your stuff goes with you. Can't take it with you. One of the commentators that I was reading this week said this, a life oriented toward riches rather than God is a life oriented toward death. Death is masked by the gleaming gold bag. Thinking of Scrooge McDuck and DuckTales in my childhood. All the gold coins everywhere, all the bags. A life oriented towards that does not see that death is waiting, waiting right behind the bag. Rather, a life that is oriented toward God is one that is oriented toward life. So what does it mean to be rich toward God there in verse 21? What does it mean? Because now we desperately need to know Okay, okay, I got it. How am I rich toward God and not rich toward myself? It's interesting the way that Jesus answered this because he transitions in verse 22 to talking about something that we wouldn't necessarily connect with being rich toward God. So as he transitions, think about that phrase, rich toward God. Smart financial planners will tell you to take the long-term view, right? If the market crashes today, they will not say, sell it all, sell it all, it's crazy, ah! 
maybe if you're going to retire tomorrow, but if you're 33, no, hold on, wait it out, wait it out, right? Take the long-term view. You've got a lot of years left. They'll say you had a plan for maybe 25, 30 years of retirement. You might live really long after you retire. So I believe I'm here today as God's financial planner. I don't have a certificate, but I believe I'm here as God's financial planner to say yes and amen to long-term planning. Plan for trillions and trillions of years. Trillions of them. Plan for trillions of years. 25 years at the end of your life for play versus a new body in the presence of Jesus and a new heavens and a new earth. It's not even a comparison. But we get so caught up. Do I have enough? Am I going to have enough? It says I need 2 million by the time I retire. Ah! Well, here's the, here's the big thing to remember. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Randy Alcorn in his fantastic book, The Treasure Principle, says you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And we'll see that here in a moment. Now, here's where this gets interesting. Because in verse 22 through 34, Jesus turns to worry and anxiety as the connection to talking about how to be rich toward God. So number three in your notes the prayer, the third prayer, may we not worry, but trust God with our treasure. May we not worry, but trust God with our treasure. And I thought I would talk about this by quoting a powerful song that many of you have heard. It goes like this. Here's a little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Be happy. In every life, we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy now. I'm not going to do the woo. <laughs> now, there's some truth, there's some good advice there, right? If you worry, you make it double. Okay, but Bobby McFerrin's advice there has ever really helped you? Like, have you ever been in like this state of like crippling worry and said, Be happy. Okay. All right, good. Um, did that fix your anxiety? Is it like some mantra? Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Jesus gives us a much better idea. He says, don't worry. God values, values you greatly. Don't worry. God provides for you. Don't worry. God knows what you need. Fear not. God is a good, good father, and he loves to give you not just what you need, but the kingdom. Okay? Here's the deal. Would you rather have $2.3 million upon retirement or a kingdom? Now, we're Americans. Maybe we don't understand that, right? But maybe you watched the royal wedding yesterday. You want a kingdom. <laughs> you want a kingdom. In fact, you want an everlasting kingdom. $2.3 million is gone in a flash. You want a kingdom. So look at what Jesus does here in these last few verses. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. That's a command, not a suggestion. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Jesus is going to the heart of worry and anxiety and he is saying, life is more. Get your head up. Look up. Life is more. 
one of the commentators said, anxiety is incredibly inefficient. Do you know that? Anxiety is incredibly inefficient. It is not a help for your life. What is the worry? The worry is our clothes, our stuff, our food, the things that we need. These are good things. So Jesus takes our eyes off of humans and he uses the natural world to help us see this. Verse 24, consider the what? The ravens. Now in the Old Testament, ravens are unclean birds. The Israelites could not eat them. They're unclean. They're not given, you don't like them. You can't eat them. They're just annoying. They come and eat your stuff. So ravens are, are very little value, right? You throw rocks at them. Get away from my stuff. But Jesus says, consider the ravens, even these unclean animals. They neither sow nor reap. Like you've never seen like a pack of ravens, right? Like dropping little seeds into little thing, little like hills. And they're not, they're not planting, right? They don't have like, get off my land. Okay, they're just ravens, right? They're, they're, they're flying around and they get their stuff. Where do they get it from? God feeds them. God feeds the ravens. God feeds them. He cares for them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Much more. Much more value. Jesus is taking this from the the small things that God even cares for these small things. And if he cares for them, how much more does he care for you made in his own image? And then verse 25, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? We know anxiety does not add to your span of life. What does it do? It takes away your span of life, right? You've got to start getting heart issues. You've got all kinds of problems with anxiety. Now, it, it, if you look at a, the note in your, in your Bible, it says that literally that says a single cubit to his stature. But what that probably means is it's probably a, a, a metaphor because adding a cubit to your stature is actually like really hard. <laughs> I'm going to grow 18 inches. So that doesn't doesn't make the the analogy work. It it probably is metaphorical, meaning are you going to add something to your span of life? Can you add an hour to your span of life by worrying? No, you can't. That's the point. Verse 26, God says, Jesus says, well, if you can't even do that, like if you can't even add an hour to your, your span of life, why are you anxious about the rest? Like you, you, worrying, won't work. (laughs) It doesn't extend your life. And if you can't even do something so small as that, why in the world are you worried about these big things? Because you know what? God's bigger than those big things. He also knows the future. He also knows everything. This This is the logic that Jesus is using to help us to see how much God loves us. I thought of the song, His Eye is on the Sparrow. I'm thinking about this. Um, listen to, to one of the, one of the uh, stanzas. Let not your heart be troubled, his tender word I hear. And resting on his goodness, I lose my doubts and fears. Though by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. For his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. The whole point of that is, if he's watching the insignificant sparrow, then he is certainly watching over me, because I have much more value than a raven, a sparrow. Jesus moves it to lilies. We have a picture of a few lilies 
couple of lilies here. Here's one, um, a Madonna lily that grows in the land of Israel. And this next one is um, an anemone. And uh, this is probably, they say, what Jesus was referring to because the hills, this is on Mount Gilboa, um, up uh, near the Jezreel Valley. And some of you that have been in Israel with us near Bet Shan. And at some times in the spring, the hills turn red because of these lilies. Now, how long does that last? One hot day, and they're gone. So Jesus says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Jesus is saying they're beautiful, they're complex, they're intricate. If you look closely at a flower and you look at all the parts, it's unbelievably beautiful. It's more beautiful than Solomon in all of his splendor and riches and all of his gold and wealth. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? If, if God cares enough to clothe the hillsides with his beautiful flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will he clothe you? Jesus gets a little jab in, O you of little faith. Trust, belief, increase, increase it. He's giving them reasons to increase their faith. He's giving them, he's giving them like little syllogisms to go, oh yeah, huh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Verse 29, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Now, of course, he's not saying like, don't meal plan. <laughs> you're like, I have a meal plan on my refrigerator at home. I better get rid of it. No, no, no. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. It's not like every night is like open the pantry. Oh no, what is it? Okay, I don't know. Jesus said not to worry. Woo-hoo. Okay. That's not what's happening here. He's saying, don't put those things in first place. Don't let those things rule your life, which they so often do, don't they? Does your to-do list rule your life sometimes? It destroys mine some days. Ah, I only got three things done. And the list is so big. And everything else stinks because of that. No, actually it doesn't. (laughs) You do. (laughs) Think bigger. Think big picture. Look at verse 30. All the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. He knows you need them. God's not like, oh, shoot. I forgot they needed bread. God is not in that situation ever. What's the antidote? Verse 31. Instead, seek not clothes, not food. Seek, and we know that Matthew 6 adds adds a word here, seek first, right? Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. This is important for us to see, and I want to say something really quick. This does not mean that no Christian ever in the history of mankind has ever died of famine, because they have. Okay, This this is not a... an overarching promise that if you love God, he'll always give you food. That's the prosperity gospel. We don't believe that. This is a a general proverb that for the most part, in most places, in most times of history, when we don't worry about these things, God tenderly, lovingly provides what we need. Now, we have so much more than we need, don't we? We have so much more. We go, we go to the store and we pick things off the shelf. There's like 17 things that had to happen to get it to that shelf. We don't have to do any of that. 
Let me show up and bam, I want that. There was a farmer and there was a truck driver and there was all kinds of stuff to get that there, right? We are so blessed. But Jesus says the antidote to worry is seeking his kingdom. The antidote to worry is seeking his kingdom. Now, why would you be worried? Why would you be anxious? Because if your life consists in the abundance of your possessions, then you must be worried about your life. Because all that matters is what you have, is what your, what your stuff is. See that connection back to the parable? The, the connection back to the parable, and even before the parable, to what Jesus saw in this young man's rec- demand, is he saw a greedy heart that was seeking first his own kingdom, not the kingdom of God. So lastly, these last few verses, verse 32, look at this tender word from Jesus. So some of you may need this today. Some of you may need a tender word. Maybe I've been stepping on your toes a little hard. Some of you probably needed me to step on your toes a little hard, maybe harder. But hear this tender word from Jesus. Fear not, little flock. <laughs> little flock, he's petting the lamb. He's taking care of the lamb. It is your father's good pleasure, good desire to give you the kingdom. The picture is God wants to give you the kingdom because he's a good father and he gives good gifts. Good fathers don't look down at their kids and give them bad gifts. (laughs) Not a good father, right? This good father goes, I love giving you good stuff. And our father has a kingdom and he's giving it to us. He's giving it to us. This is why we are mainly concerned about safety. Whenever we go on a mission trip, safety, safety, safety. Whenever we go anywhere, safety, safety, safety. Safety is important. Pray for safety. You know what the persecuted church doesn't ask for first? Prayers for safety. They know it's an unsafe world. We're just confused. They ask for the focus on the kingdom. So verse 33, Jesus says something really, really hard. Sell your possessions. Now, before we, before we do anything, our first response here is usually to rationalize that away. Well, it's not to, it's not to me. It was, it was to them. Well, they didn't sell their possessions. So what are we looking at here? Jesus is going to the heart of things. Don't hoard your stuff. This might be a verse for garage sales. Okay? But... But this is, this is, this is a not, don't, don't like just accumulate. Ha ha ha, look at all this stuff I have. Sell it, get rid of it. It's grabbing a hold of your heart. So get it out of your home so it doesn't grab a hold of your heart. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourselves, look at this, with money bags that do not grow old. They had bags, right, that were made of much lesser quality than the bags that we have. And they would, they would get old and they would get holes in them and the money would fall out of the bags. Jesus is saying, upgrade your bag. Get a bag that will never have holes in it with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The early church did this. The early church practiced this in Acts 2. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions. Huh. They took Jesus' words literally. Selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In Acts 4, 
Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. I, I remember the time in the back parking lot where I opened my door really hard and I hit Phil's car. <laughs> Dude, I don't know if you remember this. I bonked his car and I was like, it was, the, when, it was the leaf, right? Oh, and it was new. He'd just gotten the new leaf and I was like, oh, no. Like a scratch right there on the side of the car. And Phil said some of the greatest words I've ever heard. He said, it's just a car. And I was like, ah. Oh. Now listen, Phil had a right to be a little frustrated with me. I opened my car too hard. But you know what? It's just a car. And it's just a little nick on the side of the car. I didn't blow up his engine. <laughs> I, I, I dinged his car. It's, it's just stuff. It's just things that we have. Look at verse 34. This is powerful. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Now we're stepping on some toes. Now we're getting big stuff, big possessions. And so the question we end with is, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? The locale where treasure is kept ultimately determines its value. The earth is temporary. Heaven is eternal. The way to store wealth in heaven is to give it away on earth. The way to store wealth in heaven is to give it away on earth. This is why the New Testament gives us guidelines and not absolute rules on what to give. The New Testament says in several places, give according to what's in your heart. Give according to what you've determined between you and God and give and be generous. Why does it matter where our treasure is? Why is our heart where our treasure is? Daryl Bach said, one is loyal to the things one values most. You're loyal to the things you... You're not that loyal to the things you don't value. You don't really care. You're not loyal to a brand. You're not loyal to a team. If your treasure is in your man cave, there's your heart. If your treasure is in your garage or your driveway, there's your heart. If your treasure is Lake Tahoe or Bass Lake or the Oregon coast or Cabo or Hawaii, there's your heart. If your treasure is with Vanguard or Fidelity or T. Rowe Price, there's your heart. Your heart's in a bank? That's really lame. <laughs> how vain, how worthless, how temporary, how small-hearted of us. Trust God. He made you. He loves you. He sent his son. He gave his only son. The old song says, what more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. So quickly, rapid-fire applications. I mean, one very simple application from this passage is avoid inheritance disputes. Right? Like the guy in the first verse, like avoid it. Romans 12, 17 through 18 says, repay no one evil for evil. That happens in inheritance disputes, doesn't it? You took grandma's dresser, I'm taking... That's so stupid, don't do that. If at all possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all your siblings. Don't do that. That speaks so bad to the world of Christians. You know what? Rather be wronged than fight for what's yours. Mom wanted me to have that. Okay. <laughs> wow. Where's your treasure? Have you set up a guard against covetousness in your life? We're going to meet a rich ruler in chapter 18 who found that he couldn't follow Jesus because he just loved his riches, his possessions, his stuff too much. Have you actively put a guard in place? Or is greed the initial thing at the next raise? 
or the next birthday present or the next Christmas present. Maybe at lunch today, we can talk about some of these things. Retirees and those who are closing in, they step on holy ground. Is your retirement about your much-deserved relaxation or about God's redeploying you for a new, the last phase of service for his kingdom? Be so very careful to avoid our world's seductive call that now you get to play and travel for you and you don't have to work anymore because you're so smart and you saved up for this. So eat, drink, and be merry. God has given us good gifts to enjoy. Enjoy your retirement, but don't make it about you. For the Christian, there is no retirement. At least not in the way the world thinks. It's just redeployment. Retirement gives greater opportunities in some areas if we have ears to hear and eyes to see. If we're just like the world in the way we retire, then we're just like the world. For everyone else, this is not a call to be careless and not plan for your future. You need to carefully set aside money. You need to pray about your finances. You need to seek godly wisdom about your finances. Prayerfully budget, spend wisely, save wisely, give generously and cheerfully. Ask, how can we glorify God with our budget this year? How can we use this vacation to glorify God? How can we increase our retirement savings to glorify God? Make God a part of all your financial, investment, real estate, estate planning decisions. So whether you eat or you drink or you make a budget or have a garage sale or buy a home or sell a home or ask for a raise or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Because where your treasure is, there, where you're, there is your heart now. And we're not promised tonight. We're not promised tonight. You might die in a car accident on the way home. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about that. God's in control. What are you going to leave behind? Who's going to get your stuff? Who's going to remember your legacy? Who will you have touched for the kingdom? Let's pray. Father, we love our stuff. We love our toys. We like new, 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 new technology. It delights us. Lord, we love our teams. We are loyal to things when we're not loyal to you. Father, help us to reevaluate today. Help us, help it never to be said of us that we defined our very life by the stuff we have, by the car we drive, by the income tax bracket we're in. May it be said of us that we sought your kingdom first. May people know, not because we boast, but because of the way we live and the way we spend our money and the way we don't spend our money, that we love you most. And Lord, in all of that, take away our worry. Take away our anxiety. Help us to to throw our futures on you. To trust you completely because you are trustworthy and riches are not. Riches we heed not nor man's empty praise. But help us to make that a reality and be our vision. In Jesus' name, amen.